0: money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Sadly, we have another episode where I'm on my lonesome. I promised that in the near future, we'll return to a regular cadence with Sheila by my side. Today, we're going to be talking, among other things, about payments, foreign exchange, and cross-border settlement. All right, I get it. These aren't typically viewed as the sexiest topics. They deal with the plumbing of the global financial system and like plumbing that makes kitchens and bathrooms function most of us are happy not knowing how these things work. We just want to pay or get paid. But in the wake of the blow-ups of FTX, Celsius, Voyager, and others, which abruptly ended an era of to-the-moon speculation and fast money being made on DeFi tokens, NFTs, and so forth, it's perhaps now time for the crypto industry to focus on the plumbing. After all, the promise of disintermediated peer-to-peer payments and settlement lies at the heart of Bitcoin's founding document, Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper. The problem is that Bitcoin has struggled to deliver on that promise, at least as it pertains to mainstream retail or institutional transactions. The main reason for that failure is the simple fact that the world tends to price everything in sovereign fiat currencies, most importantly the dollar, which means people often resist using a volatile instrument that's changing by the minute against the sovereign benchmark that they use. It's a chicken and egg problem. Enter stablecoins. Blockchain-based tokens that are designed to hold a stable value against another benchmark asset, most often a national currency such as the dollar. Now, after the meltdown in the speculation crypto economy, stablecoins have been one of the clear growth areas. Perhaps that's because unlike those to-the-moon speculation projects, businesses, institutions, governments, and most importantly ordinary people are increasingly seeing the utility in stablecoins. It makes intuitive sense to them to be able to pay for something in the currency that they're used to with a digital instrument that comes with programmable cross-border and real-time settlement capabilities. Still, if stablecoins are to make it on the wider world of payments and foreign exchange, a lot still needs to be built at the back end, in the plumbing, as it were, so that crypto systems can plug into the day-to-day operations of banks, money transmitters, payment processors, foreign exchange brokers, etc. To discuss this today, I'm joined by Gordon Liao, who is the chief economist at Circle, the creator and issuer of the USDC stablecoin token, and by Alex McDougall, who is the CEO of Stablecore, a Canadian based company that has created the Canadian dollar backed stablecoin QCAD. Their two companies are now working together on some interesting integrations. So let's bring in Gordon and Alex with a small request that they ensure that our listeners, after this conversation, We'll start to see payments, FX, and settlement as sexy. Can you do that, guys? I go one hundred percent. Okay, this is going to be making payments sexy. Why don't one of you just talk a little bit about what you've been doing together? I think maybe laying out the integrations that you told me about between QCAD and USDC and and why it matters.
1: Sure, I'll start. Thanks for having us, Michael. Really appreciate it. And and just to piggyback a little bit about your unsexy comments and. It really is, it's time to build the boring stuff. I think you know, fantastic, fantastic opportunities get funded in, in bull markets. And we really jump you know, three, five, seven, 10 years down the line. But whenever we end up in these, these bear cycles where the media is off and no one's paying attention, it really comes back down to you know, how do I save grandma Co 20 basis points on, our, uh, on, on the cost of goods sold? And that's really was one of the fundamental premises of blockchain technology when we first started this whole thing back, back in the white paper days. We keep kind of getting, we out hype ourselves and and go too far down the line and never really get all the way done on on the basic blocking and tackling. And a lot of that is, it's not tech evolution. It's not waiting for landmark regulation. It really is building connective fabric. It's going deep into the world of multiple different types of blockchains, multiple different banking structures, multiple different regulation regimes multiple different for benefit of accounts and banking as a service and then stitching it all together to create this connective fabric of cross-border payments. So what we've really been been uh, working on with Circle is you know, taking one of the lowest hanging fruit, this cross-border commerce corridor between Canada and the U.S., um, and digitizing it. And there's a ton of connective fabric that already exists in, in the traditional fiat world uh, between Canada and the U.S., what we always have have kind of joked that we're building is is sort of a crypto NAFTA. And a big piece of this, of what we're looking to to start with, is actually the on-chain FX piece. And Mm -hmm. we'll dive a lot into the mechanics, the challenges, all of those pieces. But we're really excited about this connectivity between QCAD and USDC. And ultimately, creating a framework whereby the the world is kind of littered with domestic currency stablecoins that haven't really taken off ultimately replumbing that framework so that we can have this connected global fabric of, of multi-currency stablecoins where we don't have these fiat gaps in the middle where we, we sort of lose the magic of blockchain. Um, so we can talk a lot more specifically about what we've been building, but really it's that connectivity between our two assets and our two payment infrastructures across border between Canada and the United States.
0: We break it into the, the language of the TradFi fiat world, we're talking about essentially the world of FX, the foreign exchange business. And I know from, I used to, most of my, as a journalist, I was a currencies reporter. That's where I, I wrote about. So I'm, I'm very familiar with it. And one of the things that would always come back that we'd report on, you know, we used to be a, a, a sort of triannual, and now it's three yearly. Now I think it's more regular. It's the BIS annual survey of, of foreign exchange transactions. There's $7.5 trillion a day that get done in foreign exchange markets, right? You know, you can see that as either a market opportunity, which it may well be. You know, it can speak to this sort of massive challenges that that you guys face, but also uh, everybody faces in terms of cross-border transactions, because you talked about the basis point challenge. Did you see yourselves as facilitating crypto stablecoin payments, or do you literally still going after that market and saying, hey, I can bring down those basis points so that the 7.5 trillion in foreign exchange or whatever it is, is actually done in a way that grandma can make significantly, you know, have to be charged significantly less on that exchange?
2: Stablecoin is probably the... First killer app of crypto. And FX is probably the first market in which all of decentralized finance, everything it has developed, could be applied to. So I'm incredibly excited about the prospect of trading FX on chain and settling FX on chain for institutions as well as everyday users like the grandma you mentioned, like the migrant workers that need to send money home uh, for remittance. And that really powers the households are underserved by traditional financial services. This comes actually full circle for me as well, because I started my career as a uh, fixed income and effects trader. So having seen both at institutional level how broken the market is, uh, both as a trader and later on as the Federal Reserve responding to some of the frequent crises that we face, Now seeing the technology as available to address issues such as settlement risk, such as the delays in settlement and the high housing settlement, especially for everyday household. That is an incredible opportunity. I think uh, it really speaks to this shifting narrative around crypto, shifting from the speculative phase into the utility phase.
1: Just to quickly build on that, the way you phrase the question uh, to me is somewhat of a hallmark of the challenges in existing traditional finance are we tackling the fx component or the payments component right. and that's sort of where things break in today's world is if i'm doing a payment that has fx in there you better be you better be sure you're looking at 4 5 6% on that fx spread if it's a forced conversion mm. and if i'm honing in on on a decent fx spread you had absolutely better believe there is no payments component to that. I'm getting my wire in, I'm getting my BIPs, and then I'm getting my wire back, and payments, you know, I'll, I'll figure out on my own. So mm-hmm. it's really kind of a hallmark of on-chain solutions that, okay, I can have a payment solution that has an on-chain component transaction within it, that the whole thing is gonna cost me you know, 20, 30 BIPs, instead of either trying to do it cost-effectively and splitting it up into all of these microtransactions, or just saying, okay, well, it's gotta get there. So I'm just gonna you know, take it and, and deal with these four these or 5% conversion costs.
0: I was thinking it'd be useful to just like take that. Now let's call it 5% on average and apply that to the 7.5 trillion, right? That's 3.75, $375 billion in cost in the system, which is, which is amazing. I mean, that, I don't know whether that's accurate or not Gordon, but like <laughs> well, the bottom line yeah, is I, I whether that, that's probably a bit extreme. Because obviously, most of that 75, 7.5 trillion is interbank, right? Which is done at much, much tighter margins. But even still, the very idea that there is a lot of money every year that goes into servicing foreign exchange is big. Do, do we have any sort of estimates out there of what the costs yeah. are?
2: Absolutely. I actually released a paper titled On uh, FX and Cross Border Payment that was co authored with some colleagues at Circo as well as at Uniswap uh, Labs a couple of weeks ago that speaks to some of the stats. Uh, you're right. The $7.5 trillion per day marketing FX is largely institutional. Mm-hmm. Largely are trading at fractional of a cent, right? Mm-hmm. But where the real opportunities are, where there's already progress is tackling the end-to-end users, the remittance market, the small business to misses market, the uh, you know, paying your employees in different countries, that sort of opportunity is still huge. For remittance alone, the amount of remittance annually uh, that are sent to middle and low-income countries is about half a trillion dollars. Now, that is half a trillion dollars going towards the bottom of the pyramid for many households. And these are truly you know, the migrant workers that are every dollar counts for them. And uh, you know, the, the cost of remittance is actually quite high. And being able to shave off from our estimate, is around 80% of the cost, uh, that is a significant saving of chunk of money that goes towards uh, those households are in need. And I do think there are opportunities mm-hmm. to eventually expand into institutional side as well, You know, as evidenced by some of the central banks that are experimenting with DeFi protocols. Uh, project Mariana, for instance, is a project that the Bank of International Settlement is collaborating with, I believe, the Swiss Central Bank, as, as well as Bank de France and one of the Asian central banks, using automated market maker protocols to, in their explanation, to, to settle for wholesale CBDC. But that you know, system already exists today with payment stablecoins and with DeFi protocols and with you know, what StableCorp is building with QCAD and USDC.
1: The low-hanging fruit from kind of a you know, 80 90% step function improvement is definitely in those you know, small, medium businesses, payments, remittances. One thing that kind of gets lost in a lot of the, the discussion around, okay, well, you know, for banks, it's already pretty cheap. It's, you know, we've got a pretty efficient system. You know, DTCC put out a, a statement a little while ago that, that I always love when they went to T plus one. And people are like, one of the questions we always get asked is, why not just go straight to T plus zero? And they're like, the whole world would explode.
0: T plus one is one day <laughs> beyond the trade, right? It takes another yeah, day exactly, to final settlement. settlement. Right? T plus zero implies instantaneous settlement. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and there's such a mindset shift in going to a immediate settlement model of when when the money is there, the money is there. Whenever we're at any sort of delayed settlement, we need two sets of books and records. We need you know, what what seems to be there and then what's actually there and the dislocation between those two. You know, there's billions and billions and billions of dollars in friction costs just in maintaining two books and records right. so even when it is oh, it's you know it's a fraction of a penny on international and, and institutional um effects it's really a fraction of a penny plus this massive system
0: and it's interesting to think about like what that money could be used for right the money that's locked up essentially it has to be locked up in some form i mean it's you can't put that to use you can't invest that over that time one day it might not seem like much to everybody but the But banks make a lot of money of that. On the other hand, they also make money in those friction costs, or at least brokers and all these players do by sitting on that. They can charge for that. You're up against, I imagine, you know, incumbent resistance to to an extent. And I think Gordon, when you were talking about all the opportunities of remittances, and and also then you said, oh, and there's also institutions, and because there are like everybody, whether it's a a mum and pop person sort of sending remittances, whether it is a small business that's wanting to buy its ball bearings from Germany. Or it's actually you know, a large asset manager. They're all kind of beholden to these bank intermediaries. And one could imagine a world in which there's so much more real-time peer-to-peer settlement. But in doing so, are we not disintermediating those powerful institutions we call banks or whomever else is in the middle of And like, How do we bring them along? Like, how do they get involved in this? Because it seems that's, again, a chicken-and-egg problem. Because they're so entrenched in the system, it's very hard to Doing. Maybe this is going to get you guys into a little bit about what you're actually doing, but I just wanted to throw that out there as almost like as a strategic challenge. And Gordon, if you have any thoughts on that, since you yeah, Michael, come from that, that
2: world. That's a great question, right? Uh, I, I think banks will continue to fulfill a very important role, and they are very interested in experimenting with the technology, knowing that there are gaps. You know, these gaps are institutional, like as Alex mentioned. The delaying settlement actually matters for systemic risk the Bank of International Settlement estimated out of that $7.5 trillion per day of volume, around $2 trillion, or at least $2 trillion, are uh, what is called FX transactions with settlement risk. That is, Hmm. these are transactions which one counterparty pays the other counterparty, but doesn't necessarily receive the corresponding cash flow in the other currency right away. Hmm. And this is essentially what happened over and over again in the past, where if there is a financial crisis or if there is some issue with one of the banks, then all of a sudden the entire system kind of blows up because you have that l- large unsettled value that creates this type of systemic risk. So banks recognize that and want to work with the technology. And I think they could very well plug in to on-chain technology, yet fulfill this endpoint of supporting, for instance, you know, uh, user interface or... KYC if if it's needed, or larger uh, transactions. But I think they could continue to play an important role, but perhaps not at the level of corresponding banking uh, in the very long future, because corresponding banking, the business model there and the plumbing there is just deeply broken.
1: Calling all early stage crypto,
0: blockchain and web3 startups, teams and builders. Apply to CoinDesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on CoinDesk, and an invitation to present at CoinDesk's Private Investor Summit Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com/pitchfest. So can you describe a little bit um, about you know, maybe one for you, Alex, what, what you're doing in terms of that underlying plumbing, the interoperability of exchanging between USDC and, and QCat? what needed to happen and what did you build so that this could become relatively seamless and get as close as possible, I suppose, to that zero, zero transaction cost you were talking about?
1: Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, it's, it's not that complicated from a high-level perspective. The plumbing underneath it is what gets very complicated. So two main things. One is connectivity across multiple centralized and decentralized venues of our stablecoins, So QCAD and USDC. Finding places where there's digital assets being traded, looking at working on traditional FX brokers and where we can layer in uh, digital asset rails on the back end of both of those making those trading pairs accessible to both digital asset native people but also you know, traditional people doing this cross border rail and not at you know where on chain fx is today which is two stable coins randomly trading against each other on a dex for for prices that are all over the place but at institutional spreads so whether you need to bootstrap liquidity from existing fiat markets whether you need to provide liquidity uh, to a dex whether you need to really kind of force those currencies to trade at at the beginning in in a tight range, but really make it able to be accessible in a centralized and decentralized manner in an automated way as well. So when we were talking before about payments needing bits of FX in in the middle of it, to be able to connect the StableCorp infrastructure predominantly run through our our Grapes finance solution and the uh, Circle infrastructure run through the actual Circle solution with the FX in the middle, so with that on-chain conversion, Basically, have Circle customers, Grapes customers, be able to swap currencies between the two, and then use fiat off ramps between the Circle infrastructure and our infrastructure to complete seamless cross-border payments, fiat to fiat, using digital asset backends.
0: So you, you talked about though the need for liquidity in there, you know, uh, because as you, you're right, like if you're just trading stablecoins, or for that matter, just stablecoin versus any token on a crypto exchange, you don't know which exchange. the prices will vary from exchange to exchange and will be volatile and there may not be any liquidity. So you're talking about a market making exercise, you know, it sounds to me, where does that come from? Is that is that actually traditional FX players who are then brought in to to trade stable coins against each other and provide that ballast?
1: So we've got two there's two pieces to this and and so we've got two key partners right now, uh, Shift Markets and and DV Chain. Um and and they take two two approaches to it. What is interesting about kind of the stablecoin market is, with good infrastructure, you can swap those into fiat and manage your FX risk and manage your ability to do it. You don't necessarily need that natural volume on day one of I have this amount of USDC and this amount of QCAT and I'm making a market strictly in those books, but you need to be willing to price and have the infrastructure in place such that whether it's hedging, whether it's you know same day minting and burning. We've actually built our structure so that you can mint and burn directly in USD and USDC. Think about it almost like a wrapped uh, USD type of, of stable coin. So you need to give the market makers and give the infrastructure players the ability to price it equivalent to what they could do in the fiat world. And once they can do that, then they don't necessarily need to go into the fiat world. Once all the infrastructure is working so that you know that you can get out, you know you can hedge your book, then then why would you? So it's right. almost taking those existing structures, bootstrapping them, making sure everybody can do everything that they need to do, and then saying, yeah, but but you don't need to, because just keep it in this, and, and everything will be good.
0: It almost like drives you to that world where, by default, it is a dollar is a dollar, or it's a Canadian dollar is a Canadian dollar. It doesn't matter anymore. Like you know, totally. You're right. People still want to be settling into the original fear, but at the end of the day, if you all agree and feel comfortable that this is the same damn thing, then you just keep doing it.
1: That's been our mantra for for the long haul in this is, a lot of people try to set up gates of, okay, you're in the system, we don't want people burning, we don't want people going out, like we want to you know, grow, 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 grow. And so whether it's basis points on the way out, whatever, you need to make it incredibly easy to get in and out of digital asset world, so that it's just you know the, the backend infrastructure. And then it's up to us as you know, stablecoin creators to say, you know, before you swap out to fiat, but wait, there's more. There's this other thing you can do. Why would you go that way? If you want to settle the other way, if you want to pay with people, if you want to earn yield, um, it's sort of up to us to grow the edges of that ecosystem and that infrastructure to the point where, you know, you can't really even see the edges anymore. Right.
0: It's an interesting analogy as well to the idea of the security of a bank, right? Like, you know, there's FDI insurance. See insurance there's a wall of money there. There's the classic, you know, like, never have to worry. You don't have to take your money out of the bank because the bank's always going to pay you back. So if you, Show the capacity to to repay, or in this case, to exchange back into fiat. Then you don't need exchange. It's a very interesting way to think about it. Gordon, maybe you, since you've had this FX experience, you could just talk to this. It sounded like, if I read interpreted what Alex was saying correctly, that because of the sort of automaticity, if you like, of the trading in and out in in a a, across an on-chain transaction, that the hedging prices will come down. Right, you don't need to be running a separate book trading CAD versus dollar and then holding that as a hedge value against what you're actually exchanging with your clients. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it and whether or not here's a huge opportunity for institutions to reduce their hedging costs as they exchange foreign exchange?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hedging is one of the biggest usage of foreign exchange, right? If you look at the amount of volume that's traded, a lot of it is actually in the forward market. Why do Mm -hmm. people use forwards? Because people are able to hedge their cash flow that's not coming yet, but will come in the future. So, the foreign market is responsible for the hedging, and that is a huge opportunity in itself. You know, I like to reflect on what Alex said, and I, I think you're spot on with some of the element, key elements that you highlighted, uh, with how, especially the on ramp and off ramp, and how similar it is. And having that optionality of converting back into fiat would allow people to feel more comfortable using stablecoin as a medium exchange uh, in itself. Um, I also do think that you know the real opportunity in a longer term is to fully decentralize the FX market. The, the FX market is a very decentralized market to begin with in that, that there is not a single exchange, is not trading in a single jurisdiction, it's instead spread out between many banks and spread out between many market makers. But I think using the DeFi apparatus that's been built up over time, the various type of protocols, both for uh, trading, but also for things like lending, collateralized lending, that would hopefully enable uh, fully decentralized trading of FX as well, that take full advantage of what what I think of decentralized finance is not necessarily decentralization of governance, rather it's decentralization of balance sheet. And by spreading out that uh, concentration of risk, by allowing the end user to eventually perhaps become liquidity providers as well. I think that could bring in a lot more liquidity, a lot more usage that probably would also make the system a lot safer as well.
0: Now, Alex, you know, I saw some notes that you sent me to, before this conversation that I thought was interesting. It's like, you know, you talked about some of the assumptions that people would be making in the crypto space, perhaps being either a little ahead of themselves or just out of place and then leading to, in some respects, the volatility and problems we face. And And one is just the Fundamental recognition that we all need to be referencing against the dollar, that it is this global benchmark. And whether we like it or not, it's it, right? And I want to sort of like break that down a little bit because one of the arguments for Bitcoin, not that were, this is a necessary conversation about Bitcoin, but there was that, you know, the dollar's hegemony at some point gets challenged. People don't trust central banks, et cetera, et cetera. But now with the sort of growth of stablecoins, the idea of this very liquid, desirable, digital dollar being available anywhere in the world, you know, there's an argument, and I think, Gordon, we talked about this when I saw you a couple of weeks ago, the the dollar could just end up taking over the world, right? (laughs) In fact, certainly in, in developing countries that have problems with hyperinflation, et cetera, et cetera, how does that trade off? Are you, in some respects, by now building infrastructure to enable exchange into dollars out of Canadian digital dollars, are we basically hastening or widening even further, this, <laughs> further the dollar? Or in fact, are we like giving the Canadian dollar its, its capacity to, to stand so, up to
1: it? <laughs> that's a fantastic way to ask that question. We one of the key learnings from you know, 2017, 2018 is everybody watched Tether take off and USDC take off and said, hey, there's crypto trading in my country too. All the same things apply. Let me create a local currency stable coin and I'll start counting my money. Thank you very much the landscape is littered with dead local currency stable coins. And you know, I, I think about it almost as like you know, fiber, fiber to the curb or or fiber to the hub. And then you have this like garbage domestic banking system. And then you're like, hey, I'm going to drop a digital asset up here. And you know, you put it on local retail exchanges and it fundamentally misses the point of how the majority of digital asset trading works in 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 the entire world which is there is no multi-currency digital asset trading. Everybody is just plugged back into the U.S. dollar uh, mainframe of liquidity. And yeah. so domestic currency stable coins are completely useless unless you have a, a connection or build out natively from connectivity to U.S. dollar. And ideally, you know, a, a U.S. dollar stable coin. So, you know, and, and we, we were one of the biggest learners of that lesson in launching a Canadian dollar stablecoin in, in 2019. Um, and so when we re- really reoriented the the structure of it and said, OK, well, let's let's think about this, as I, I said it before, kind of a wrapped USD that enables the Canadian dollar market makers to price equivalently in, in QCAD to what they do in C dollars, enables them to help with our FX hedging, enables them to better manage their book. Yeah, you know, the Canadian banking system is obviously challenging for for many reasons. So enables them to access U.S. dollar liquidity on a non-banking cycle, like all of those things that we know are friction points to them. Then it kind of naturally gets to okay, now now we can start offering domestic trading in 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 uh, uh, domestic currency stablecoins. But it's still you know kind of a, a skin on top of American dollar liquidity. So there's two ways that this potentially go. One is exactly what you said. It'd be like, why do you even need the skin? Just have the U.S. dollar go everywhere. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, as we talked about the edges of that stablecoin market getting farther and farther away and where you can pay locally in USDC and you can do everything and all of that, that may be the outcome. The other is also an alternative and option, though, as well. As you know, it becomes less frictionful to actually exchange domestic currency counterparty to counterparty and those trades have lower kind of um, overhead to them, you may actually see a further distancing where you actually get some domestic volume and actually start having counterparties be able to trade against each other because the friction cost isn't there anymore and you can make that work at quite a bit lower scale. So I mm. don't know which is going to be the answer, but um, I Ooh. I know that connectivity to the US dollar is is where you need to start today to even make either of those a possibility.
0: So, so when I think about these is I tend to think like, well, at the end of the day, the answer to that question actually becomes very fundamental. Like, what do you want as a Canadian citizen, as a French citizen, as somebody in Australia? Like, like do you want this currency that is issued by your institution, managed by your government, your sovereign structure? Is that beneficial to you or not? Because then if the infrastructure gets built around making that Easier to move in and out of dollars. You're still going to want to. You still will. Hopefully, come back to it, right? And, and I think that just becomes a much bigger fundamental question because there is some fear that a digital dollar, a bit a CBDC or a stablecoin or whatever, ends up challenging the monetary sovereignty of countries that have, have traditionally struggled to assert it, even places that aren't necessarily basket cases, but are just smaller and don't have that you know sort of capacity to sort of resist the flows. Gordon, putting your economist hat on here, how do you think about that? W- what actually is defining demand for dollars versus, say, the South African rand?
2: Yeah, I see a lot of analogy between the fiat system and the digital asset system, right? If you think about the trading of commodities, oil and gas, it's all quoted in a dollar. That's why the petrodollar is going to exist. So similarly, you have this dominance of dollar hatch money. In the digital asset world, yet at the same time, you know, coming from an international monetary policy type of background as myself, I think it is really important for individual countries to have their monetary sovereignty, so then they could use that tool as a way of stimulating the economy when needed. And that's why I think you know projects like QCAD, and as well as you know what Circle launched in Europe, the Eurocoin. These are important ways for. local economy to still have a control of their own currency, because at the end of the day, you know, local currency fulfilled the role of being able to help monetary authorities adjust the stimulus from a monetary policy perspective, as well as to collect taxes in local currency, which is coming from the fiscal perspective. The two are needed to be targeted towards the local economy so that we all are independent from a monetary policy perspective, from a local economy stimulus perspective rather than being tied up in one giant global economy as we are already in many ways
0: all right so one last question then i think we're gonna have to wrap it up how do you see this in the context of the great debate over cbdc central bank digital currencies versus stable coins like what you guys are building can that easily be transferable to a cbdc environment this is of course you know a tokens being issued and essentially controlled by the central bank, although I think there's now a huge spectrum of what we think this, the model of digital fiat is going to look like. But you know, clearly the idea that there's a central bank rather that is managing its own ledger as opposed to building tokens on top of public ledgers, public blockchains, is a distinction. Do you see it plugging into the same infrastructure that you're building? Or is that going to have to be an entirely different model?
2: I think the use case for C B D C is still to be determined and what form it will take is still to be determined. You know, as Fabio Panetta, the one of the executive members of ECB said recently, C B D C in Europe would not be programmable. I and mean, that's a huge shortcoming in many respects. And I think, you know, in many ways, that's what people expect CBDC if it develops to be. as a faster, you know, instantaneous payment system, just as the Fed now will be, but it wouldn't be necessarily a replacement for private sector innovations that allows composability, programmability or money. How do you make it
0: software if you've got this institution in the middle of it? Is that the point? You know, we tend to think of it as software, but it's also about the capacity for one entity to be able to speak to in a software sense the other entity and not having an intermediary in the middle. And you put that intermediary in there and you can call it whatever you like, but it's not programmable because it's already a block to the automatic transaction, the automatic contract being carried out.
2: And guess what? That intermediary will be very slow to upgrade its system. It's Mm -hmm. not like, you know, with software where it's constantly upgradable as people spot problematic aspects or need to expand the scalability. Central bank digital currency is a bet, is a multi-decade bet that Mm -hmm. might or might not realize. And Mm. it's a bet on technology that it will be fixed for a long period of time. I think that's Mm -hmm. a fundamental difference as well.
0: Right. In a a fast changing world. Yeah, Alex.
1: And I think there's a cool world of CBDCs where, I mean, we already have public and private money, right? Like we have central bank money and then we have the money multiplying machines of banks. And then we have private credit that is transferable and sits on top of it. If we end up replicating that world in a truly you know, blockchain world where we have central banks that control these big, chunky units of credit, some sort of you know algorithmic money multiplying machines like a, you know, an on-chain bank that creates credit according to a set of you know, underwriting criteria or whatever we want to do, it, getting into kind of far-fetch land that creates you know, larger private-issued stable coins where whatever CBDCs can be the backing of it. All that put together, that's a really cool world. That's kind of a nice blend of you know what what we have today, what's kind of new. It it puts it empowers people. It doesn't overly uh, infringe on flexibility. Do we end up in that world? Potentially, it requires a lot of uh, giving up of power of the existing gatekeepers to the world. To Gordon's point, we've seen hundreds of different things, ranging from a hey, it's a CBDC, it's actually an Excel spreadsheet, to you know some pretty innovative and, and interesting thoughts. And so, you know, both obviously the, the US to a certain extent and, and Canada, maybe to a, a little bit more, but, but it, it, it's still up up in the air, um, are pretty far away from sort of a comprehensive structure of what this would actually look like. I always kind of cringe when I hear people like, oh, I'm going to buy a coffee with the CBDC. Like, that's never been the point of it. And there's already an analog that sort of makes sense. I'm not bullish on them just because it takes a long time. And that those are not institutions that are great at uh, pushing out technology, um, but I think ultimately we're going to end up with pretty neutral versions of anything that does exist that still leaves tons of room for private sector innovation and, and the stuff that we're building. And we're building it today and CBDCs are not here today. So we'll we'll deal with that, uh, that thing a year from now or two years from now or 10 years from now.
2: You know, ending on um, what we do need, which is regulatory harmonization between different mm. countries and jurisdictions. It cannot be that one country's payment stable coins and another country's e money is another country's you know, security token. We truly do need regulatory harmonization to support the innovative growth in this sector.
1: Or self regulatory um, organizations and standard settings uh, from the stablecoin industry around how we should be doing this in advance of, of regulatory clarity as well.
0: But it would also probably international, right? I mean, that, that self regulatory body needs to be thought of from a Truly international perspective, which, is, uh, which I'm going to use as a shameless plug for, for Consensus this year, <laughs> because we will, of course, be having a panel precisely on this challenge of like, how do we find this you know regulatory unity around the world? Um, it is one of the great challenges. And I think at the end of the day, whether or not it's building a CBDC or establishing the regulatory framework for stable coins, governments really still do hold a lot of power and where all this goes. So whatever they come up with is, is going to matter one way or another. But on that note, I will say my farewells. Thank you very much, Alex McDougall from StableCourt. Thank you, Gordon Leal, Chief Economist at Circle. Uh, It was a fascinating conversation, really giving us a great wide-ranging look at the hidden plumbing of of FX and settlement and how stablecoins integrating with each other can start to make a dent into that and what the rest of the world looks like afterwards. So thank you thanks very much for coming. And thank you to all of you listeners. We'll be back next week with another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now.
2: You've been
1: listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Announcements by Adeby Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.